Welcome to episode 67 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment. Hosting today are Eddie Kramer, Chris Lee, and myself, Winston Moy. We're a couple of CNC enthusiasts, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about what we're making and life in the shop. Eddie, Chris, how are you guys doing today? I'm doing good. How about you, Chris? Feeling better? Yeah, feeling much better. Doing great. Uh, staying alive in this heat in California. Yeah, so we're, we're recording uh, one week late. I think uh, Chris was recovering from mild illness last week. It wasn't COVID. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Um, speaking of that, I am fully vaxxed. How are you guys doing on that? It's a good feeling. I got my second shot this past Wednesday. Um, felt like someone hit my arm with a yeah, baseball bat, yeah, but other than here. that, pretty okay. <laughs> my second one's coming in like two weeks. All right. Pretty soon we can start attending things. Uh, more like we can schedule uh, Neopalooza in your shop. <laughs> Wait till I get my mini split. (laughs) Oh, that's true. Yeah. So uh, actually, I think I'm going to go this week. I was going to try to go um, last month, and I just I was too busy. It was like too swamped. But I basically just I have two days now. I like unless something comes in, I'm going to go talk to the guys about the install. Yeah, moves last. I think it's been four weeks since we last recorded. Right? Does it sound right? Yeah, it's been a while. A lot, of, a lot of little things happening, especially with you, Eddie. I see you, uh, you've been pretty prolific with your Instagram stories. So a couple of things going on. I didn't post about the compressor, but I, actually I did. So my, I think I'm, I don't know if I mentioned this on last podcast, I don't think it happened yet, but my, uh, my main air compressor, the uh, Eastwood finally gave up the ghost and it's still under warranty. So I'm trying to get it, uh, Eastwood to either replace it or fix it. You know, I've been able to fix everything that's gone wrong with it throughout the last, the first 12 months I owned it. Um, it's been like picture switches and stuff that's easy to fix. But this one, I I can't figure out what's wrong. I think it's the start, either the starter circuit or the air end is seized up. Like the motor tries to start, but it's not turning over. So I'll let them, you know, figure it out under warranty what, what needs to be done to get me back up and running on that compressor. So I'm, I switched over to my backup compressor which is the cap I originally had, which wasn't doing a good job of running the Neo. Um, it's a cat, uh, I think it's four horsepower. I can't remember. It's got two motors, four heads, uh, reciprocating. And when I ran that, that's the, that's the compressor I had when I first had the Neo and it was basically, it would run out of air or I get low air warning on the Neo. Like when that compressor got to the bottom of its cycle. Um, other than that, it was it was doing okay. Like if I just ran air blast, it would do okay. If I turned on the MQL, um, that was just a little too much air demand for that. And so that's why I basically put that away and got the scroll compressor. But now that, you know, I, that's the only working compressor I have now, um, the cat. So I'm back on it and it's actually working great now because I didn't realize at the time I first set it up that, um, the way they had the, like the main problem was always at the bottom of the cycle. There's really two problems. The low, the low side, like where the compressor kicks on is 90 PSI, which is pretty close to the low warning on the Neo. Like it really doesn't like to get down to 90 PSI. Um, so I found out you can just the pressure, you know, you don't want to go above the safe pressure, but I just basically raised the pressure, um, the stop start pressure by five PSI so that doesn't quite dip down to 90 PSI at the bottom, like before the motor kicks on, it goes to like 
It's supposed to kick on at 95, but mine was kicking on at 90, so it may have just been like adjusted wrong. I'm not sure from the factory. But now it kicks on at 95, and that helped a lot. Um, the other thing I found out was the auto drain, um, which is a nice feature, <laughs> except it was firing like it only fires when the compressor's running, and uh, it always fires right at the beginning of the cycle, like for a couple of seconds, and then it was firing like it's basically firing every five seconds during the fill. So it was draining half the tank. <laughs> I never even realized that. Um, so I adjusted that to basically only fire once. Um, I can't change the fact that it fires at the bottom, like at the lowest pressure in the tank, like when the motor first comes on, which is like the worst time for it to fire. Because the other issue with that compressor for me, for the Neo, is that it only has a quarter inch plumbing on the airlines. Like um, my other compressor was, I think, uh, half inch, no, it was three quarter inch. Um, and all my airline piping in the in the shop is three quarter inch so uh, that quarter inch is very restrictive and you know even if it has plenty of pressure um, the neo has pretty high flow requirements too so it was kind of uh, making it dip below the 90 psi just when like air demand would come on auto drain was one of those demands right so you know it was that kind of perfect storm it was opening the you know opening up the tank to atmosphere right at the bottom of the cycle which kind of put the uh, air pressure in the line to the machine below the, the sensor point, right? So now I have it basically only goes off once per cycle, like right at the very beginning and, and much more briefly. Um, that's temporary. I'm actually going to end up hooking up my um, the kind of independent air, uh, auto drain, electronic auto drains from McMaster Car. That's what I had set up on the Eastwood because it didn't have an auto drain. And I think I'm going to switch this cat over to that too and just disconnect their auto drain because that one fires independently of the, uh, like the compressor doesn't have to be on, this, like the motor doesn't have to be on for that to fire. And I was running that like only once every 10 hours and you know running it for like seven seconds to make sure the tank was drained daily. And that, that worked fine. So I think I'll probably just switch this over to that. And that's like, but even with the changes I made now, it's running the Neo just fine with everything, on, like all the max demand coming off the Neo. Uh, it would not run a second machine <laughs> for sure. It's like right at the threshold. Um, but the other thing, like with all those adjustments I made now, it's running in the, it's running within CAT's recommended duty cycle. Before it was not, it was like running, you know, it was on much too long compared to the off time. Wasn't really having time to cool down. And I was, you know, occasionally getting thermal shutdowns on the motors, but now it was like, I have, they have a 70, 30 max duty cycle and I'm probably 10% under that now um, with all the changes. And uh, now it's like keeping up just fine. Like I haven't had any thermal issues with it. I have a fan blowing on it, which helps too. But, and like I said, the shop's a little cooler with insulation in there. But I think, you know, I was thinking it would last a week, but now I think, it, you know, it can run until I decide what I'm going to do for a new compressor. If I'm going to go rotary screw, which is where I'm leaning, or uh, I'm kind of just doing a little bit more research. There's other options too, so I'm not sure. My main requirement is it fit in my power budget and be quiet, like super quiet, right? Those are like the two main things. It's got you know run on single phase. Are you shopping for a compressor um, with the um, like keeping in mind that you might want a second spindle? Like you're sizing it for that. That's the big like on the Kaiser especially or Kaiser. How do you say that? Um, that's like one of the things I'm trying to decide. Do I go ahead and size it for a second machine? Basically, the second Neo is what I would use as my goal. A machine that flowed enough to run two Neos wouldn't work on my single phase power without a phase converter um, and more amps, right, than I can supply. So I may be kind of stuck with buying one that just would run the Neo 
the wind machine. And then, you know, if we move and I get more power or maybe decide to put it in three phase, um, you know, through a phase converter, then I might, you know, I think a, a Kaiser compressor is pretty easy to sell. <laughs> so I've just upgraded then, uh, to a bigger one when I need it. Yeah. So that's actually one of the, that's kind of what made me stop my purchase. Like, uh, last couple of weeks I've been looking at them and then I'm trying to decide on that question. Like, do I size it for two or one? And like the, the size of the compressor I need to run two Neos is just not going to work on my, on the 200 amp circuit that I have here because we're already using a lot <laughs> for other things. So, but yeah, other than that, that's, um, like long-term, I want a compressor that can, you know, one compressor that can handle it, anything I put in my shop, but that's probably going to require two purchases over time. Be my guess. I'm almost wondering if you just get two of those cat compressors that way you just have redundancy, at least like you could keep one of the spindles turning, but you know, what's funny about those cat compressors. Like even the, the company, kind of undersells them because they'll say like, oh, this duty cycle has been for like 50% or 30% of whatever this is. But that little one that I bought for the pocket and C, I literally ran that thing at hundred percent. It needed to be turned on constantly. And it ran for like almost a year. I was expecting it to just implode or melt down, you know, after a month or so of using it. But I was putting like, you know, 15 plus hours in one day, nonstop, no fan on it, just freaking like just running it until it was gonna explode and the thing lasted forever I, I feel like those things are pretty well built and the bigger one that we bought for the um laser cutter and everything sometimes that runs pretty pretty hot and long too but it, it keeps keeps it keeps going pretty well I, i'm surprised at the price and like everything about it like it, it's really well made the first month they had the neo i would say it's running like 95 5 duty cycle it's basically running all the time and um not getting enough time to cool off but still, you know, it, it basically handled that safely in the sense that like, um, it has thermal monitoring. So like I would see one motor shut off if it got too hot. The other one would still run because it was closer to the fan. But that, you know, when it's just on one motor, I'm definitely not getting enough air for the Neo. But uh, now it's like it's running. I think if I'm reading that correctly, like, they say 70, 30. I don't know if that's 70 on, 30 off, which is what I, about where I'm at. I'm probably on 60 on, 40 off. Um, or if they mean 70 off, <laughs> 70 off 30 on, in which case I'm way over. Yeah. We'll see how well it holds up. And I probably have, I don't know. I'll probably put a thousand hours on it before, and maybe not that much before I settle on what I'm going to, you know, the replacement for it. So that's a lot of work. Cause I think I'm gonna have to have an electrician out here to upgrade that circuit once again, to go on anything bigger than what I have now, um, bigger than the scroll compressor. The scroll compressor was on a 30 amp, the. Cat only needs a 15 amp or maybe 20. So it's, it's got more, I mean, it's on a bigger breaker than it needs to be. Not worried about that. But I think the, the rotary screw is going to be on a 40 amp minimum, maybe higher. I, I'm following closely along because it's your research and developing all the troubles of having a garage shop, basically like being able to make sure you have the power and like how to navigate all that stuff. So uh, I'm glad you're keeping us updated on this. Yeah, to be honest, I mean, so far power has not been a problem. Um, I've been lucky that I have an electrician that is um, pretty, you know, even during COVID, he was no problem getting him out here. Uh, he's, you know, he's pretty timely and he does good work. And uh, I actually haven't talked to him in a while, so I plan on having him out here again for the, for at least for the mini split, if the AC guy isn't going to do that. I don't know if they do the electrical, whoever does the install. 
And then uh, he already he's already on call for the like I already talked to him about the compressor last time he was here because I said you know I know I'm probably gonna have to upgrade. So he was kind of telling me how he got he I think he said 40 amps not a problem. If you need 60 amps for the circuit, it's probably gonna be a problem. Especially like he knew I was looking at upgrading the AC. He said it's kind of getting getting. Uh, he's like, could you switch your 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 oven over to gas? <laughs> It's like, yeah, I could. I don't know if my wife would like that, but um, yeah, so I don't know. I'm probably you know, pushing it. If I... Rotary screw is kind of not a typical garage compressor, I think. Although I know I know plenty of people that run them in the garage, but it's like you gotta have a, you, you would need a pretty big machine to need that. Um, but the Neo has like its air demands are super sized for its size. I think it's mainly air seal on the bearings and the air blasts that kind of comes with the territory though right because your chip clearing is all air like you don't have a coolant in a pump it's everything is air so i've been working on this design for um a keyboard tray like the neo hat yeah I, I don't know if i talked about this before but they dayton sells a sheet metal basically arm and tray to mount a keyboard below the, the touchscreen um, it's an option. I decided not to get it when I bought the machine because I'm like, it's touchscreen, right? I don't need a keyboard. But there's, I do enough data entry, especially like when setting up custom tools and stuff, or like changing a program at the control if I'm tweaking something. That I, I want a regular keyboard there. It's painful to do it on the touchscreen. But I didn't want to go with their sheet metal. Like the sheet metal solution that Daytron sells is fixed. Like I want to be able to, like bring the keyboard up, use it when I'm using it, and then fold it out of the way behind the control. Cause, I'm kind of tight on space, right? And it's right, it would be right, it'd be sticking out right where I kind of walked by the machine. I'd be hitting it all the time. So uh, I'm designing my own keyboard mount. It kind of clamps to the same pole that holds the monitor. And uh, I'm going to have to be doing some, like potentially, like on the design right now, I've got some deep drilling that's like, or at least deeper than I've ever drilled or machined uh, on the Neo before. So. Uh, may change the design so I can avoid that, but there's like two holes that are almost 40 millimeters deep that I got to kind of drill through so on a tall piece. So I'm still trying to figure out like the best DFM for this part. But you know, you were talking about, I think once you get down to that depth, that's like, that's kind of where the Neo has a little bit of trouble with uh, getting coolant and chip, you know, basically the air blasts and the MQL doesn't really help you too much, the deeper holes. I would recommend that you do your helical entry with a generous taper angle. Um, that way, even if as you get in the pockets, if you have a little bit of trouble getting the chips out, uh, you really wouldn't have any issue with the chips and the being like just rubbed against the wall. Yeah, actually, that's what I was thinking of doing is like just a large uh, uh, counterbore pocket. And then because I don't really need that much screw length. It's just to get through the material, right? Um, so I might just do a bigger hole, interpolate it, and then just for the through hole for the screws, um, if I can fit the tool down there, right? <laughs> Without having to go too long of a tool. Like, um, yeah, I'll figure it out. It's, I was tempted to just come from the other side and kind of meet in the middle, but the work holding, depending on how I do this, it, it'd be kind of tricky. Uh, with the probe, it might work, but uh, I think I'm gonna have to hold this in the vise or a fixture. Cause it's about, it's the arm is, um, well, if I do two pieces, it's going to be about 160 millimeters long and I got it 
do end work on it. That's where the tricky part is. Unless I can design that out. I mean, the other option is just do a one piece, 180 millimeters long, um, but it, ha it still needs end work. So I'm one end of it. So we'll see. It's like I'm in the early design phase right now. It looks the way I want it to look, and now I just got to figure out how to make it makeable. Uh, just over design it because you know, like little vibrations transmit into like monitor shake and I'm sure the keyboard would start shaking too if uh, you're doing lots of tiny little movements on the Neo. Yeah, I actually have two places where I'll have like vibration dampening rubber or, you know, or some sort of neoprene or something. Um, I think that'll help with that. So I need one anyway for kind of a friction lock. That's how I'm going to uh, kind of swing it out of the way. It's just a, a knob, right, that tightens against it. It pinches a disc, right, for friction. If I need something more, I'll do like a detent or a pin or something. But I want it to be quick. Are you going with a Bluetooth keyboard? No, a wired keyboard. Yeah, because I actually like, it's a mechanical keyboard. Um, it needs power, so I didn't want to go deal with batteries. Sorry. Um, how certain are you that the keyboard's going to tolerate the uh, shop conditions? Because uh, from my experience, you get a lot of like fines and like aluminum powder that just settles on everything. Yeah, so it's actually it's got some IP rating on the key switches. Um, it's not liquid proof, but it's it's dust tolerant. It's a game. It's kind of like a gaming keyboard. Um, the thing is, it's cheap enough that like if I have to throw it away every year and buy a new one, I don't really care. <laughs> so, uh, most of the time, like when the machine is running, it'll be folded like keyboard keys down. Does that make sense or It'll be behind the, the touchscreen, so it'll kind of be out of the way. Except when you open the door, right? Then the, that's the main time you get chips sprinkled on the keyboard. For me, anyway, because they kind of they build up on the um, interlock housing, which is on the right side, right next to the touchscreen. And if you don't like, if you open the door and don't kind of catch up, they all sprinkle down <laughs> to the right of the machine. But in most case, that's for me. That's usually Delrin, so it's not. Not conducting. Well, that's true. The the kinds of materials you machine have changed a lot. Well, I do machine aluminum for every mold job. I mean, every uh, ice tray job. So they, we got to do the base plate. So but there's not a lot of machining on that. So it's really just some holes in a profile. And you're using a larger tool, so those chips are bigger. So you don't really have that issue. It's it really depends on the kinds of features that you're making will affect the kinds of chips and dust that you end up yeah, with. Yeah, I end up with a lot more Delrin all over the shop than I do aluminum. <laughs> and that's I mean, that's more because it sticks to everything. You know, when I pull the part out, it's sticking to the part and just kind of sprinkles down when I move it to the table. Sticks to me, sticks in my hair. <laughs> but, um, there are worse problems to have. Better that it's plastic than aluminum chips sticking to you. Now that I'm using like the 14 millimeter uh, single flute to do the the roughing it's like the chips are big like they're behaving more like aluminum with that they still stick because of static but they're a lot easier to clean up than when i was using like the eight millimeter or the six millimeter rough just because they're, they're they're bigger i guess they're kind of and they uh they don't drift as far as the like the small chips and the dust when i'm finishing i do get delrin dust all over everything but it stays inside the machine and probably in my lungs <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so anyway, so the keyboard uh, arm, which is like, I'm massively over-engineering it. Um, I want it to look cool. I want it to kind of look, it's got some Datron themes in it. So I posted like the initial concept uh, story yesterday, but it's yeah, I kind of weaved in the Datron longboard hex theme into it. And uh, if I can 
get it anodized or powder coated correctly, it'll be Daytron blue. <laughs> so yeah, it's been a fun little project. You know, I decided like once a month I'm going to work on a project that's just for me, just for, you know, not a commercial project. And uh, right now, this month, it's that one. So the other thing I, I did this week or the last couple of weeks is I, I started working with uh, that two, two color HDPE composite. It's like signboard. You, know, you machine away. It's usually like one color um, and then the contrasting color in the center. So you, you normally, if you're making a sign, right, you just engrave away the top color and you get your sign color or, or the other way around, right? Machine away everything and just leave your letters in the top color. Um, but I'm using it for, um, I don't know if I can say what they are, but basically they're going to be carriers. So I'm machining a bunch of pockets that will basically hold product uh, during the manufacturing process. That's, I guess that's the best <laughs> about much as I can say about it. Um, the thing is I have to machine a bunch of like pretty well-finished smooth pockets and uh, into these trays. The trays are about, uh, they're probably, six, I think they're 16 inches by four inches or maybe five inches wide. And um, stuff like, you know, I, I went at it with Delrin Speeds and Feeds and this stuff's way easier. I mean, Delrin's pretty easy to machine, but this stuff's like, it was like machining air at Delrin Speeds. Like I wasn't getting any spindle load, so I've been cranking it up. Um, see how fast, because I, I got to make a bunch of these pretty soon. So I want the cycle time to be pretty fast. And uh, like, I think I'm finishing at almost 10 meters per minute and I can probably go faster uh, without degrading surface finish too much on the, the one area that matters for that. But yeah, so I, I like this material. Um, still, you know, it can warp like of all the test pieces I made, I had one that I would consider like warped excessively. But it actually, like unlike Delrin, like I kind of just put a little pressure on it the other way and it stayed flat. Like it kind of bent it back. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, I measured it after, it's been five days since I machined it and it's still as flat as I left it last time. It's as flat as the other pieces now. So like, I'm kind of wondering, I, I'm, like if this would be a good replacement for the Delrin, for the bigger parts that we're doing, but I have a feeling it can't take the heat these Delrin pieces get subjected to, but, um, during curing, but other than that, it's like, I can see this stuff machines pretty quick, but it probably warp even worse than Delrin like that, like doing something like the full size, uh, ice trays that we do. That's a lot of material removal from one side. So I don't know. So yeah, that material, uh, I'll probably be doing other projects with it. Like the first thing that occurred to me was it's a lot like the Kaizen foam, right? In the color, like with the two color design. So, um, but it's not messy to machine like Kaizen. <laughs> so it actually machined beautifully. It doesn't stick like Delrin, like all the chips went just straight down. Uh, didn't have any static issues with it. They do stick to the tool, but they weren't melting. So that was just speeds and feeds. Probably needs to be tweaked a little more. But I want to make, uh, maybe make my, my uh, tool organizers out of that. You know what I'm saying? Toolbox tray organizers, like you use Kaizen foam. Yeah, I, I've seen it before. Um, I do like what you did with it where you face the surface because I'm personally not a fan of that skin texture on that uh, HDPE. But when once you face it, it actually looks really good. Yeah, and actually, I think what I would do, like if I'm using it for organizer, um, I'd probably face it down. It kind of, I think like the the outer color layers, so the top, and it's on the top and the bottom, right? There's about a, 
I'd say it's probably about 1.75 millimeters of the color before you're into the core material. It's probably a 16th of an inch. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I think if you face that down to maybe leave 20.25 millimeters, like we're super thin, I don't know how far you could go before it starts kind of fading, but, um, I would like it to be thinner and then engrave. Like if I make pockets to hold something, I might just engrave what goes there. You know what I'm saying? Some small lettering. And I think if it's not, if I'm not having a machine too deep into the color, like it would look kind of funky if you just did it right on top. It, Cause it's, I'm thinking very small engraving, right? Small letters, small writing. Um, yeah, I, I, I have a bunch of it left over from the test. I'm gonna do some more mess around with it and see how it'll work for some of the other ideas I have. Um, looks like good material just to have around the shop for organizing. Yeah, we stock something pretty similar in the carbide store. I think they sell it like the the natural size for it is eight foot by four foot, just like wood, right? So if you you know if you have a machine big enough, you could do something really big with it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm getting it from Amazon's. Um, it, I think King King Plastics makes the stuff I'm using. And I was looking on the website; they only sell the full size sheet, which I might buy if I have to do a lot more. Um, just cut it up here, but right now for the quantity I'm doing, I'm just you can get it cut to like neo sizes on Amazon and eBay. I think Amazon's a better deal. Like the first piece I ordered, I ordered from eBay it was cheap. I think it was uh, 18 by 12 inch by three quarter inch, and it was 17 dollars. But shipping was like 20 dollars <laughs> on top of that. And when I ordered three, it was like. $17 a piece plus the shipping was cumulative. It wasn't like $20 for the orders, $20 for each plate, even though it was one, it was going to be one box. So I ended up just ordering one um, and then start looking for another source. But you can get it almost for the same price on eBay. I mean, on uh, Amazon um, with Prime. So you don't, or at least with no or free shipping, actually. I don't know if it was Prime, but um, I think it was like $22 shipped from uh Amazon for the cut to size. I think they have like 12 by 12, 12 by 18, 24 by 24. There's like four or five sizes. So, uh, but definitely I think, uh, it looks good for organizing. So I got some ideas. We'll see how that goes. You know, it, you could actually probably try and find a local sign shop to source that. Um, for a quick one-off prototype, we went to a sign shop out here, and that's where we got a sample of the um, the aluminum, the dye bond, the aluminum HTPE sandwich material that we use on the Nomad. Um, so a lot of places like that, they'll stock the four by eight foot sheets and uh, you can just have them cut you a slice of whatever you need. Okay. Yeah. I found a local supply, like King, when I went to the website, you can enter your zip and they show you like your local dealer. And there's one here in San Antonio. Um, but yeah, I haven't checked with them. If I, if I do have to order a lot, I'd go ahead and take a four by eight sheet and cut it here because that's probably the cheapest. Um, I just got to figure out how to get home. <laughs> if it fit in anything, I have it. Yeah, that's a good idea. I think, you know, especially on the bigger size of shipping starts to get to be ridiculous. I'm kind of hogging all the airtime here, guys. <laughs> so what you been up to, Winston? Uh, honestly, not a whole lot of machining. Um, I've been doing some design work in the background. Um, a couple weeks ago, it was all about injection molding. Now it's a little bit of sheet metal in there. So it's it's forcing me to familiarize myself with the different uh, modules and fusion, uh, the different component styles you can make. Um, so it's life is good. Um, the Shapeoko 4 launch has kept us all pretty busy too. So there's that. 
So are you designing molds Is that for injection molding? Um, we're designing, I, I was designing parts to be injection molded. Um, so yeah, it'd be a lot for me to actually design the mold itself. Um, yeah, not all of us are skilled like Chris. <laughs> it's not that bad. You're, you're, you're smarter than me by, by bounds and leaps. So. I think it's really just learning the design principles. Uh, I mean, having designed a part for injection molding, like there's a lot of little features that I see now that make a lot more sense. Um, but until you have that experience, it's kind of just like a mystery. And I, I tend to just shirk away from, from learning that dark art. <laughs> it, it, it literally is exactly what you said. It's, there's just like a hundred rules that you have to remember. And then uh, once you have that down, just follow the rules. You know, the the more constraints you have, the easier your job is, right? Like if someone were to say, hey, can you design this? Like, sure. Uh what do you need? He's like, oh, whatever you want, just design something cool. My brains explode, right? Like, <laughs> we don't want that kind of, we want the job where it's like, hey, this is what I need. Do this, make it this size. Don't do this big. Here's the color. Here's the material. Okay, boom. I don't have to think about anything. You've given me everything I need to basically make the part. So mold making is kind of like that in, in some aspect, um, to some degree. I think the other big part of it, though, is just sort of experience, um, because I was designing things. I've been told the best practices, uh, like avoid like really thick areas, transitioning to thin areas because you get sink marks and warpage and stuff like that. And so I go through my first pass design run um, in Fusion. I'm I'm trying to follow all these rules super precisely, thinking that if I mess it up, the part's going to come out looking ugly. But then I look at some of the like the parts um, for just regular things around the house or in the shop. And I start to notice, like, well, they didn't get that area perfect. There is a sink mark there that I can see, but most people just aren't going to care. Um, so it's learning also, like, where you can sort of just relax your your standards a little bit and just accept it won't be flawless, um, but it'll do the job. Yeah, and I think there's a common misconception about, like, mold design or mold makers is, like, they don't get it right the first time. They just design and mill with and out. So they give themselves like a net. So for example, if you're if you're concerned about sinking through like a th from a thick wall to thin wall, they might just add you know twenty thousands to both and then see how that plays out. If it doesn't play out, they have the meat there to go back in there and fix the wall to make it thinner or or do something after the fact. The mold insert never. I, I mean, no one's perfect, right? It's like it usually comes out. They need to fix something. Goes back on the machine shop indicate pick it off run it again take something off put it back on okay it works we're good to go it's it's very i mean at least at the shop that i worked at it was never like a one and done type situation it was more like hey we're not sure if this is going to work let's try it but let's give ourselves an out just in case we need to have like a secondary plan if it doesn't work or if we need to increase flow or we always give we basically always gave ourselves multiple chances of things that we thought might go wrong so that we always have a way to like fix that and not basically design or machine your way into a hole. So that's uh that's like 40 chess right now. You're thinking too many <laughs> steps ahead of me, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you're right though. Most people don't even notice like, you know, the injection marks, the witness marks, like ribs and things like that. It's not until you have to make something long that you start to see it. Otherwise my entire life, I've never noticed one single thing about injection molding until I started working at the mold shop. Then my eyes kind of like open and you start looking for those kind of things. But other than that, it's like kind of hidden. Yeah. It's the classic symptom of like, for the thing that you design yourself, you will see every <laughs> imperfection. Yeah, absolutely. 
Hey, I wanted to circle back, Chris, because you were talking about Eddie being sort of the uh, the pathfinder for like the home shop. Are you any closer to buying a machine? Uh, so you mean personally? Yes and no. I'm still kind of teeter totering between you know career focus and also self business entrepreneurship. Um, and like my career is going like I'm really happy with where I am, and I'm really happy about where I'm going to be next year. And I have, um, without, I don't want to spoil anything. It's just like, I have my ducks in a row, basically. So like where I want it to be at next year, it looks like it's coming to fruition. So now it's just a game of playing out the time until I get to that point. And if I start the new job there, it's like, I I don't know if I'm going to have the time to do the self-business thing, but I'm okay with because the place I'm going to be working at is going to be amazing. And like, I'm going to have so much fun. I'm going to learn a bunch of cool stuff. So I'm not quite there yet. Unless something happens and I don't get that job, then I might uh, take a minute to think about, okay, do I want to pursue this again you know, later? How bad do I want this job? And I'm going to reevaluate as that goes, but I'm going to kind of play it a little bit by ear. But I have, my, I have my basically my paths laid out in front of me. It's either I continue down my career path and I go to these, work for these companies that I've kind of like laid out in front of me. I only have three places that I really want to work, but I don't work. If I don't get to any of those places, then it's okay. Then I'm not looking for a job somewhere else. I'm basically going to pivot and I'm going to start my own thing or start making my own thing or do something uh, that I can, you know, work from home and, and things like that. So that's kind of where I am at so far. So I won't know for sure until next year, March, uh, to see if everything kind of falls through and stuff. So hopefully that answered your question. Yeah. Yeah. It's you're you're postponing the excitement of shopping for a, a machine, but I mean you're also doing some pretty important stuff, so I get that. You know, knock on wood, I'm gonna be here around the earth for a while, right? So I'm okay with giving up, you know, the next five years to work in a professional setting so that I can set myself up for the rest of my life to do my own thing. Because I'm learning, like I think we talked about this before, but I'm learning a lot how to run a company working for this company. And basically just every job that I've had, I've been thinking about what went right, what went wrong. And I'm I'm kind of like collecting these thoughts and ways to run a business in my head so that when the time comes, I'm kind of ready to like execute. So it's been very interesting to see all aspects of my day job, like the quoting and getting customers, bringing it in, you know, um, being efficient and, and how to be good, how to manage people, how to like teach people, train people, like how to interact with different. It's been a good learning experience besides just the machining part aspect of it. It's been nice to have, like a multi-department kind of team work together and kind of see how things work in the real world. You work so hard. I don't see where you really have time to do anything outside of that anyway. <laughs> it's like, uh, or at least if you do anything, it probably you wouldn't want it to be machining related, right? You got to have a little bit of life in there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm also keeping things open cause you know, I, I want to have a kid soon. So like, I'm going to have to factor that in somehow and I don't want to be, naive and think that I can do everything right so well I I have I have my like overarching goals and then I think everything just kind of like leaving some space for life to happen my first instinct now when I want to make something is just go to the neo right (laughs) because it's fast and uh if I was doing this like in my day job you know outside of my own business like I don't know if I'd be have the same enthusiasm for coming home and doing like several more hours of the same thing I, I, I kind of see that. But. I mean, there's also the uh, 
the the biggest thing is just you have a tool changer. If I had a nomad with even just like a four tool changer, like a big tool, small tool, a chamfer tool, and something else, I would use that so much. Like I I wouldn't have like that kind of like just oh I'll just do it on the daytron. Um, but it's there's like little things that would totally change my viewpoint on the small machines. But there are luxuries that once you experience them, it's really hard to pull yourself away from. Vacuum work holdings another one. You guys do have probing, which is nice. Like that, I would be. It would be hard to go to a machine with no probing for me. <laughs> but, you you uh, heard it here, folks. Nomad <laughs> Four with an ATC changer. <laughs> yeah, I, I could see a Shape Oko getting that feature someday. Um, bef- just because it's easier to put a, a ATC capable spindle on something like that. But. Yeah, but you got to find an ATC that doesn't double the price right. of the machine. <laughs> yeah, now you need an air compressor and. <laughs> Yeah, everything gets really complicated. Um, so speaking of machines, it's not quite as exciting as a, a new uh, scene, a new milling machine, but I narrowed down my list to, uh, I'm sorry, on the 3D printers, like to, to pretty much one machine. <laughs> I think um, I'm going to be going for the Prusa, the Mark III. Yeah, um, at least for my next machine. Because the, the only other machine like that really caught my eye was the... I don't know if I'm saying this right, the lull spot, but they're expensive. <laughs> yeah, but they have they have a, a dual print head uh, multi-material machine. It's so sweet. Like I can't remember what the build area on that one is. Um, but it's, you know, really good engineering, but it's 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 like I could buy four Prusas or maybe five for the price of that. So uh, I'm not into 3D printing just enough to really go that high on budget. So... Um, but I think the Prusa is going to be like a big step up from my small printer bot, just having the bigger build area alone, which is, that's like the main limitation I run into. Um, I was trying to print this, that keyboards, you know, I'm prototyping everything in 3d printed to make sure it all fits before I machine anything. And, uh, it was actually, it's too big to print in one piece. So I had to like break it up into several pieces and glue it together, which, um, if I had the Prusa, I could have printed it monolithic monolithically which uh i almost maybe pulled the trigger on it this week but it's a long lead time item so <laughs> no reason to rush yeah. so the we had a lulzwell at the community college and i i always had issues with it but i mean what makes it so um like what makes it stand out i guess for the price to be so high well i think they compete more like the lulzbot and what's the other ultimaker I, I think they're kind of in the same market space um, as far as like, I would assume just higher reliability, better, better quality components, um, better software, right? I'm assuming that's, you know, there, I would call it, it's aimed at the professional, you know, the engineering design space more than the home consumer. Um, I don't know if they're, I don't think they're any faster. Um, I don't know if the print quality is better. I think, what did, what did you mention, Winston, you said like, can you tell like the print quality difference? We have an older uh, Ultimaker at work, the the two plus, I think. And compared to my Ender Five, it does some things better and some things worse. Um, curved surfaces have it subjectively. There's a tiny bit more fastening, but like the cooling system just works a lot better. So you get less stringing, um, like out of the nozzle as it moves between different sections. It could also be like just there's a number of like little factors that go into it, right? Um, you have like a little gear that's pushing through filament, 
Um, the Ultimakers, at least the ones that we use, have thicker filament, um, which means there's like just a little less elasticity. So as you like retract the filament and move to a different spot, like the filament like pulls back. Uh, there's no springiness in it. Uh, whereas the thinner filament and the uh, Ender Five um, between moves, like some of you still get just a little bit of leakage. Um, so. Like, there's a lot of things in the response mechanically in the filament itself that affect the print quality. I'm rambling, um, but the differences are subtle. Um, like, all of these printers will make the part, um, but the differences in quality are are generally small um, and mostly cosmetic. Is your Ender, I'm curious, is it direct drive or is it Bowden tube? It's Bowden tube. Okay. Yeah, the three, the one I'm looking at is direct drive, which... I think, yeah, it is, which I like on the machine I have now. Like it handles, um, you know, printer bots, God, it's like probably closing in on 10, almost 10 years old design. And um, like it handles flexible filament. Like it just, I think direct drive for the kind of stuff, I, the kind of material I want to work with is a better answer, um, less or less hassle, right? Um, but I noticed like the lull spot, also uses the 2.75, it uses a larger diameter filament. I think some of that's just because it's bigger print area, right? It can lay down more, bigger nozzle, right? Get more plastic down to speed things up where you don't care so much about layer height. Yeah, I don't know. Like the, the one I looked at, the one I was, I can't remember the model, but it has two print heads. I mean, it's actually pretty interesting looking. I'll see if I, I can, I'll probably link to it in the show notes, but it has uh, two side-by-side print heads and they actually physically retract. They're on like a Z rail independent. So like when it switches colors or switches materials, like one of the heads pulls up out of the way and I guess it purges or whatever. No, it doesn't even have to purge. Just, it pulls up so it doesn't come, like doesn't string onto the part as the other one's coming down. You know what I'm saying? It kind of gets out of the way. So I think that's part of the cost. We had the, I want to say the, the Lulzbot Taz Pro or something at the school. Yeah, I don't know, we just we could never get it like working and I never got a chance to really play with it. It, it was like off and on as far as like I don't know, they might have gotten an older model, or I don't know, it's been there for a while type of thing, so I don't know what happened or maybe the students before me kind of destroyed it trying to get it working, but well, I'm definitely not considering it just cuz I think it was like 5 grand when I was looking at like <laughs> but it was cool. Like I hadn't seen any FDM printers that could do um like it does two color, like I do two color prints on mine, you know, by manually changing the filament mid job, gotten pretty good at that, but it's always, you can only change at the layer level, right? I can't like this one can do in the same layer, multiple colors. We'll see where we go from there. I, I have been using the printer more often now. I'm starting to prototype or print stuff before I machine it more often now, especially if I have like multiple components, just want to see how they fit together uh, before I commit to aluminum. Yeah, I mean the the you're, the Prusa. Are you getting the Prusa or the Ender? Uh, the Prusa. Yeah, the, I looked at the Ender too. Um, I think the Prusa is a couple of like that was probably of all the people that responded, the of our listeners, like ten to one, get Prusa. Is <laughs> what the recommendation was from like people that have them. Um, everyone like there's a lot. Of, I think Ender was like right behind it. Um, I think I'd be happy with either one. I can't remember what what the build area was on the. Ender. The Prusa was, I, I wanted what something that was at least 200 by 200, and the Prusa checks that box a little bit over. The uh, the Ender 5 Plus is pretty big. 
I want to say it's like 300-ish. Like 400, 300-ish. That, that's the reason why I would want to get it, because I wanted the big size. If if I didn't need the size, I would get a Prusa. Okay, actually, that's something that, to that was my That was my consideration, basically. Um, Creality has a printer for like basically any size you want, but no one that I know has ever said the Prusa is a bad machine. Um, it's just like, if you're a value budget minded shopper that's like really where creality shines yeah yeah and you get a very satisfactory experience oh three 350 by 350 by 400 oh okay well that actually makes me re- rethink because <laughs> uh i don't think i checked I wanna, that before because i wanted to print big stuff right like helmets and things like that so fit over yeah. my big noggin yeah i'd so. rather like have more print area than i need than not enough because it's very frustrating to not have enough. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I don't like having but, to do like, multi-piece. I mean, Prusa is like the gold standard, you know what I mean? It's like the, <laughs> it's like the best printer that you can, you can kind of get for a pretty decent price. I think this yeah. is not super expensive, um, but it's good quality and reliable. Yeah. I think beyond that you're into non-consumer stuff, which like I keep, you know, for the most part, I don't hear that those printers print, like the final print quality is all that much better than any of the good consumer ones. I think, you know, there's others, there's probably some other value add there, maybe around support and maintenance and software, but um, I don't need that. I don't, you know, as long as it's fairly reliable and I'm not always having to tweak it to keep it working. Um, I, you know, which is pretty much my experience with the printer bot. It's been like rock solid, never broken. I did a couple of upgrades when I first bought it, like better print bed and like ever since I did that, the thing just it's I would say I have like ninety-eight percent reliability on or print success. You know, every once in a while I'll get one that something big with a lot a lot of surface area on the first layer, right? It didn't quite stick to the bed very well. But I, I kinda know like to work around that now. That's the main thing I worry about, right? I want it to the print to succeed. <laughs> I don't want to love yeah. So it sounds like Ender or Pusa both get me there. So that's good. I would say either of those op- either of those options are great, um, and there's probably no reason to ever spend more than fifteen hundred for the kind of stuff that you're doing. Yeah, you know, my budget was like under a thousand, so or right at you know. So the Ender, if I, I mean, not the Ender, the um, Pusa, if I depends on whether I want to put it together myself, <laughs> you know, whether it's like seven something or nine something, but, um, I'll probably do. I probably put it together myself. I like doing that stuff. And I'll get to know the machine a little better, right? How to tweak it. And like both of those machines have pretty good user communities and aftermarket support, like lots of upgrades. So that was the other thing I want. Um, Yeah, so you're right. I should probably refactor my decision based on the build area. Yeah, I mean, that's basically everything, right? Yeah, I didn't realize it was that significantly larger. I was, for some reason, I got in my head they were about the same size, but... um, Okay, well, that's good to know. No, it's it's pretty big, yeah. How about you, Chris? Got uh, anything interesting happen last <laughs> last month since we last talked? Uh, no, I mean, you know, unfortunately, the the guy at work that I trained the last six months over on the water jet, he ended up uh, having some personal issues and he had to leave. So that leaves me pretty strapped at work because now I'm uh. I'm in the middle of programming the mill turn for a really difficult job. And now I have to train another person to help run the water jet, but I have to set it up. And then I'm still programming for the five axis as well. So I'm, I'm super busy at work running around 
uh, the three machines trying to get everything kind of keep keep everything going. Yeah, so the next month or two is going to be tough for me at work. But um, as far as the night job, uh, things have been going really good. At you know UMC's been running great, and the VF4 and the the lathe, all all chipping away and doing great stuff. My next project for there is um, we have these breakaway rear set pegs for the motorcycles that we're designing, and uh, basically. It's like if you think of a peg for a motorcycle, but we actually machine like a little uh, a slot that goes through it so that when the event that it does touch the ground when you're turning, it breaks, it snaps that tip off and it won't drag you or pull the rear set off the bike and it won't cause like critical damage or anything. It'll basically just snap off and then you'll, you'll low side and then you'll be able to pick up and run the bike again. But what I'm thinking is if there's a way for me to position this peg onto like a tombstone on the UMC and basically make like how many of these suckers can I fit on there so that I can reach almost all sides of the peg. Um, we might end up doing the first stop on the lathe, like the, the part that actually bolts into the rear set itself and have it do the one side and then fixture it uh, in onto the tombstone for the UMC to do everything else in the other side because the lathe can basically run all night right so when we come in the morning they'll have like 500 parts sitting there and then the operator can just pick those up and load those into the umc to do all the finishing and if i can get it to like an eight hour cycle if i can fit like 24 32 of these then that's kind of what i'm shooting for right now is maximum hours of running so that we can run uh in in evening or something and have him come back and be finished and the guy only has to load like twice a day uh, and, and for for that to keep going so that, that's what I've been working on. Um, nothing finalized yet, so I'm still kind of thinking about it. Uh, if you guys ever find any pictures of things that might be cool or help out with that, send them my way. Um, but yeah, that, that's all I've been working on. Are there any kind of specific requirements for this fixture? Like, are there any angles that you need to hit? Or is it just you need clearance for, like, 3 plus 2 machining? Uh, there's really no, no restrictions. I just have to be able to fit the tombstone in the UMC, right? So it's got, like, 20 inch in Z and 16 by 16 or 13 by 15 or something like that. Um, and just, you know, there's no, unfortunately this one, there's no constraint. It's whatever my brain can come up with. And as far as the peg, it's like, if there's basically five sides, I have to hit the six side, which is the part that connects. Uh, we're going to do that as a separate op. Um, so I just need to be able to hit all the sides on the rear set, the other five sides, basically. So, they're going to have to be angled, not only in uh, on the X plane, but also the Y plane a little bit, I think. I think that's the way I'm imagining it. And I might have to stagger the rear sets so that when, you know, yeah, like clearances for, you know, the first one, the top row might be easy, but then I have to be able to reach the second and the third row. And the, the whole goal is fit as many of these suckers as I can to maximize cycle time. If we can get a 20 plus hour cycle time, that's perfect. That's what we want. So uh, that that's it. If you have ideas and, you know, help me out. Um, I can send you guys like a picture later of what the rooster looks like. There's nothing, not, nothing secretive about this. This isn't like uh, proprietary information. It's just a rear set with the breakaway peg. So it's pretty standard. I was going to ask you about the water jet. Just a quick water jet question. Can, can you guys, is it possible to do like then stock on a water jet like um, like less than one sixteenth inch, like really thin a metal plate, cut small parts. I mean, I've been cutting like ten thousands aluminum 
20 thousandths, 30, 40. I've done silicone at 20 thousandths. I've done G10 at 20 thousandths. I mean, if they're uh, small parts, they just kind of float away and you have some way of retrieving them. How does that work? Or do they stay put? So it depends. So let, let's say... Say one, one inch by one inch. 60 thousandths. Yeah. Okay, one so inch. one inch by one inch and 16, 60 thousandths thick. Um, if we, we might leave a tab if we're having an issue a really, really small tab at the very, very end of the cut. So for example, if we're cutting a square and we start on the bottom left corner, I would cut to the top left, to the top right, to the bottom right, and it would finish in the bottom left again. But instead of finishing the cut, we'll just leave like a 10 thousandths tab. And then that tab is basically super easy to get rid of, right? Um, they can do it manually or you know whatever. If we don't want a tab because the part's kind of harder to work with, a lot of times, the, if the if the material is sturdy enough, it'll it'll be able to take uh, the cut before it like flicks off or something. But most of the time, the part doesn't really fly that far. I, I think the most I've seen the part fly is like maybe two three inches. It just kind of depends also uh, what support material you're using, like sacrificial plate you're putting underneath. So they have this thing called like the rhino board, which is a bunch of like uh, really hard plastic straws that have been glued together, and then they basically cut it with a hot wire to make it flat. And we use these boards so that the water jet uh, nozzle can pierce through but not actually cut through the material. Uh, so we get more than one use out of it, basically. You know, imagine if I had to cut your 60,000 sheet and I had to put it on top of another sheet, they're both getting cut that same time. It's gonna fall through the water jet. So these like straw, these glued straws that create like a hex pattern allows the pressure to go through without cutting the sacrificial board. So we can get like, it's mostly holes. We get like maybe five to ten uses before the hole gets through, but it's just the 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 way business of water jetting is. Like no matter what, you're gonna have something sacrificial on there. Um, and we use the board for we want to get the most flatness out of the part as possible. And for something like thin like that, I would use the board. Now, if we had something thicker, you know, you would just cut it on the slats of the water jet. But even those those will degrade over time as well. So if if parallelism is an issue we need to have like new slats put in before we do the cut stuff so yeah i'm asking i had someone reach out to me about some parts they thought maybe i could make on the neo but the quantity and the size like it made to me i think it would be more economical to get a water jet it was like super thin material and they need a lot of them <laughs> so i was like the the other cool thing is like you can take a thin piece of material and you can still use a super glue trick um you can still put you can still put like painter's tape or we actually use a uh, powder coating tape, the green tape. And it's basically just good for that one cut. So we'll just put it down on the board. It'll, it'll stick for like that one cut. We'll super glue on the back of the part and it'll hold enough. The other thing you can do is uh, if you put your stock down, I'll tape over the part, just, you know, kind of like you're, you're just covering the top of the part. And that tape itself is kind of enough to hold things down if, if we're afraid of things flying away or falling into the water jet. Um, and then there's other tricks like hot glue, you know, or, or, and things like that we, we use a lot of. Hot glue is kind of like the king of water jet fixturing. It's, it's perfect because you can dip it easily. It cools quickly and then it's easy to remove so that our surface is still flat afterwards. We don't have to like you know, deform it with screws or anything like that. Yeah. And it doesn't care if it gets wet. It doesn't care if it gets wet and it cuts right through if it needs to, doesn't impede the water jet cutting and stuff. True. Okay. Well, thanks. I'll uh, share that with them. I just, I wanted to recommend that, but I wasn't sure if that would work for thin material. So that's good to know. 
Is there any reason that laser cutting is out of consideration? Uh, laser cutting is usually out of the consideration for the stuff we work with because of heat affected zones. We can't have the material like burn and then it basically alters the you know chemistry or whatever and the the aerospace companies that we work at they don't like that so a lot of times uh, they'll tell us don't laser cut or don't do this or very rarely they say don't water jet usually it's mostly don't laser cut because of that or or plasma cut you get uh well i don't depends on the material but you get heat hardening right on the edges so this this would be uh pipe bearing bronze so i don't think it would be that big an issue but yeah, it depends on, on what their end use case is, right? Like what functionality and stuff like that. But water just amazing for like super rough cuts. Uh, you know, ideally like 30 to 40 thousandths plus or minus is when your life is easy. Uh, when you have to hold like plus or minus 10, people usually laugh at me. But we, we've figured out ways to do it. And now that I have, it becomes we most of our stuff is plus or minus 10 on the water jet at work. Yeah, these are, I don't know if precision was that high. Um, they have some holes. They're like a, basically a plate, a wear plate. Um, so they, that's why they wanted the bearing bonds. But uh, yeah, that might work. When when we were, when I was learning the water jet, there's like no information out there. And this is, it's all just tribal knowledge per shop. Every shop that had to struggle through like the learning process. And I kind of hated it. And there's a part of me that wants to write like a, a cheat, guidebook for water jet fixturing and cutting for different materials because like i don't feel like information should be that difficult to have for for a water jet like it i i don't know why there isn't information already out there you know but it took us months to develop all these strategies and, and i'm sure someone else have done this already but it doesn't seem like anyone's making videos or sharing or, or doing things like that <laughs> There's so. no, no saunders of water jetting huh? <laughs> yeah exactly and it's like you know, I, I I wish there was. It would have saved me a lot of trouble. But now I'm thinking maybe I should just take all my notes and put it into like some kind of document to put online or something. Yeah. Well, we're I think we're almost out of time. You guys uh, want to wrap it up? You got anything else? Uh, I would say just one comment. Um, I don't know what the mechanical properties of that bearing bronze is, but uh, also don't discount stamping. Um, depending on the scale that you want to do, because that is super scalable as well and really cheap once you're looking at big, big uh, quantity numbers. Yeah, it's actually, it's probably thin enough to be fine to be stamped. Um, I don't know if their quantity would be high enough to justify like the tooling for that, but carbide die or tool steel die or something. Or not stamped, punched, I think. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know what they're. Like bigger plans if this would be series production but just the number they came to me with i could do it on the neo it's thin material it'd work okay on vacuum but i don't think i could do it economically for him like i think he could do better <laughs> you know what i'm saying so uh because i mean they look like parts they're almost too basic to spend time machining on does that make sense like a different process looks like it'd be more cost effective but yeah, stamping would be super cheap once the tooling's done, especially if they, you know, really high volume. I don't think there's anything cheaper than that for like really large numbers. But I could send them to superb <laughs> if he needs tens of millions of them a day. <laughs> okay, guys. Well, I uh, enjoyed. It. I'm glad we were able to get back together. It's been uh, been a month. It's been a while. So good to talk to you guys again. Feels good to uh, just talk shop. Hopefully we'll we'll get back onto a more normal recording schedule soon. I think uh, I don't know how your workload's going. Mine's starting to get a little more predictable. So 
hopefully that will help. All right. Good night, guys. All right. Talk to you later. Have a good one.